You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would speak a word of forgiveness over us today and that our hearts might be moved to forgive those, even those who have harmed us. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul continues his first letter to the Corinthians with the passage that we just had read this morning. And it may seem that this is a divergence from Paul's line of thought because he's talking about the problems in Corinth and how they've manifested themselves in terms of immoral behavior. That's how he begins chapter 5 and how he will ultimately end chapter 6. And so is he just chasing a theological rabbit when it comes to the lawsuits that he speaks of here in chapter 6? The answer is no, because this is part of the overarching question that Paul is putting to the Corinthians, which is this. How do we live together as brothers and sisters? What does it look like for us to live in the Christian community that is the church? And how are you careful that the culture around you doesn't only inform what you're doing, but actually ends up being formative in who you are. Because that's exactly what's happening in Corinth. When it comes to immoral behavior or here the lawsuits, the principle is still the same. The Greek people were incredibly litigious, which is really saying something as an American. Uh, they loved lawsuits so much that they would come from near and far to hear the lawyers argue the case. Uh, they loved it. This is how they got their news. They didn't have much else to do. And even there's a record, historically, of jury trials where the jury numbered 1,000 people. And in one instance, 6,000 people. Can you imagine that? Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, please stand. Have you rendered a verdict? It was something that was really big in Corinth and Paul, as he said about the orators before, that I'm not going to base my ministry on their pattern of speaking or on their behavior, but I'm going to preach Christ and him crucified and my weakness, God's power, will be made manifest. And so too, now you're allowing the culture to begin to inform how you work out your conflicts. And of course, the prevailing problem in the Corinthian church is one of self-interest. That my rights, my personhood, my ambitions, my hopes are more important than the church and certainly more important than any other individual in the life of the church. And so I'm going to pursue what is rightfully mine. And this has manifested itself in the Corinthian church in lawsuits. Now, why does God see these lawsuits as a problem? First, they bring discredit upon the church. Two, in engaging in a lawsuit with another believer, you have already lost. And three, it is to lose sight of the gospel altogether. Now, these lawsuits were bringing discredit upon the witness of the church Paul says in verse 5, I say this to your shame. Shame. The witness to those outside of the church has been greatly harmed. 
Well, a pagan Corinthian says, you're no different than us. In fact, you might be worse. This is what Paul harkens back to in chapter 5, verse 1. That there's behavior among you of a kind that is not even tolerated amongst the pagans. So rather than being different, they were worse than the culture. And the Corinthians saw it. But of course, this is an accusation that is not confined to the situation in Corinth, but is alive and well today. When the church is unwilling or incapable of sorting through disputes or exercising discipline in the life of the church, bad things happen. In fact, Paul asks in verse 2, are you so incompetent that there's no one among you that can help work out these conflicts that you have to take it to a church? I mean, to a trot, to a judge? To lawyers? Now, Paul is not saying here that lawyers and judges are the problem. I'm looking at a lot of you right now. He's not saying that. In fact, there are times when, in fact, you should pursue your legal rights, especially when someone is coming after you. But what Paul is saying here, these are conflicts that should have been and ought to be resolved in the context of the local church, but rather than even bothering with that, you go straight to trial. And you're suing one another. And when this happens, people get hurt, and terrible harm is done to our witness. This has been writ large in the past several years with the failure of the Roman Catholic Church to deal with the abuse of children. And such an unwillingness to engage in the situation has led them into the civil courts where civil authorities can no longer wait upon the church to sort things out, but must act in the interest of those who are the victims, and rightfully so. Now what it should have looked like is not looking the other way, or not even a lack of justice, but when someone who is in a position of power and authority, spiritually speaking, is abusing anybody, St. Paul has just said this in chapter 5, they need to be removed. They need help. They need discipline. They don't need to be shuffled along to another church, hoping that it won't happen again. But when we look the other way, People get hurt along the way. And lest you think that I'm singling out the Roman Catholics, I want to say that the Episcopal Church, our own denomination's relentless pursuit of litigation around property issues is, in the words of St. Paul, shameful. As a denomination, we have spent over $70 million suing other Christians. 70 million of money that men and women like you have placed in the collection plate that one would hope would go to gospel ministry has been spent on lawsuits. It's shameful and the world sees it and discredit is brought upon the church. Paul says too, that to engage in lawsuits with other believers mean that you have already lost. He says in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. It's already a defeat for you. For those of you who have been involved in a lawsuit, whether that's with a believer or unbeliever, 
you are aware of how wrapped up you can become in it emotionally. The issue may eventually be resolved legally, but its spiritual and emotional effects are still there and they are lasting. And of course, the issue that Paul is getting at here is not lawsuits, that's just the manifestation of the problem, but issues of conflict. How do we handle conflict amongst believers? Now Paul will later say that there's actually a positive side to conflict. If there's conflict in the local church, it means that it's a sign of a lively church. But if everybody's just kind of going along to get along and agreeing on everything, that's not a very lively place. But what's happening now is the negative side of conflict, which is that the enemy has gotten a foothold in the life of the congregation. And often, when conflict occurs in the church, rather than deal with it, many people want to paper it over, creating a veneer of unity. You may not be aware of this, but it seems to me that Corinthians were in fact Southerners. When the divisions rose, they were, they were all too happy to talk about other people behind their back, but to their face they were sweet as pie. And then eventually they showed up in the courtroom. They did not want to do the hard and godly work of dealing with grievances believer to believer. It's not rolling over and going along to get along that Paul is saying, but it's working it out as brothers and sisters in Christ. And one of the things that we must keep in mind as Christians is that we believe in a judgment day. No one will get away with anything. All will be called to account. Justice will be served. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But even those of us who have been wronged, if we're aware of our own sinfulness, oughtn't we be more concerned with mercy than justice? Because where we're asking for justice when it comes to our adversary, our hearts are all too ready to cry for mercy for our own position. And yet the justice that falls on the unjust is the same justice that is going to fall upon us as well. And in that great and terrible day of judgment, the Christian heart ought to be moved not just mercy for ourselves, but mercy to those who even deserve justice. Because but for the grace of God, go us. And so we see that when believers engage in this type of behavior, we're liable to lose sight of the gospel altogether. We forget who we are and what we are. Here's St. Paul in Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 
Do you see what the gospel does? In the first instance, what Jesus' death and resurrection does is it reconciles us to God. That while we were at one time enemies of God who justly deserved wrath and punishment, God sent His Son in order to take the justice that we deserved upon Himself where he died the death that we deserved in order that we would go from being enemies of God to now his beloved sons and daughters, his children, that we've been reconciled to him. It's an amazing thing when you think about it. We didn't ask for it. We didn't want it. And we surely didn't deserve it. But God in his infinite love and mercy accomplished it in Jesus but do you see what else it does? It not only reconciles us to God, it reconciles us to one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, when we see a brother and sister and we're in conflict with them, because of the cross of Christ, they're not to be objects of wrath, but objects of our mercy. And so when we harbor an unwillingness to forgive others, we must ask ourselves, have we really understood our own forgiveness in Jesus Christ? Do we begrudge God's mercy? Simon the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7 sure did when he had thrown this wonderful formal banquet for Jesus and it was interrupted by a woman who was a notorious sinner who broke a jar of alabaster ointment over Jesus' feet, washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. And Simon would have none of it. Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other only 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. When you're in touch with who you are in your own sinfulness and what we deserve... For the wages of sin is death, but you understand the gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It produces a mercy in your heart that is inexplicable apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. And so it's providential that today we remember St. Patrick. St. Patrick, in his own autobiography, tells the story of how at 16 years of age, in his home in Britain, spoiler alert, did you know St. Patrick's not Irish? He's not. There he was in Britain, and some Irish marauders came through at 16 years of age, and they took he and some other folks from the village and took them over to Ireland and turned them into slaves. And for six years, Patrick labored as a slave until he saw the moment of his escape. He escaped across the Irish Sea and went back home to Britain. And while he was there, God gave him a vision 
where he heard the voice of his Irish captors who had enslaved him. And with one voice they cried out, We appeal to you, holy slave boy, to come and walk among us. Now what would you say to the people who enslaved you? Who said, come and tell us of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Well, I know what the old Adam says within me. No way. You don't deserve God's mercy. And quite literally, I'm not going to bring the gospel to you. And therefore, you can go to hell. Because that's where you belong. But because Patrick understood who he was in Christ and experienced the forgiveness of his sins through the cross of Christ, he loved his enemies enough to go and preach the gospel in Ireland and an entire nation was transformed. An entire people through the preaching of one man. That is the power of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ and that is the power that Jesus offers to you and me today. These lawsuits in Corinth and the lawsuits today are a great scandal to the church of God and they point to a deep and dark spiritual reality in many of our hearts. And many today amongst us still find ourselves captive and in need of forgiveness, of cleansing, and of the release and freedom that only Jesus can bring. And there are even those amongst us today as Christians who can't seem to forgive those who have wronged us. And we think that we're in control of the situation, but brothers and sisters, when you're held captive to that, it's got a hold of you. And yet Jesus sees you today and wants to move your heart to a place where you can forgive, a place where you can experience freedom, and that that memory and that experience no longer has domain over you. For Christ has come to set you free. This lack of forgiveness in the life of the church, it brings discredit upon us, It brings us a sense of loss in the eyes of the world. And it's easy for us to altogether lose sight of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let us pray to the Lord that he would not leave us to ourselves, but as as brothers and sisters that we might seek his forgiveness and the forgiveness of one another. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, our hearts are hard And the pain that we experience here on earth is felt so much more up in heaven. It was certainly felt on that day outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago where all the sin of the world upon Jesus was laid. He felt abandoned. He felt forsaken. He felt separated from you. And Lord, although we've never experienced that in its totality, We still feel it, those of us who are alienated from you, who don't know your forgiveness, Lord, I pray that this morning you would move hearts to have their eyes open to the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ and they would know his freeing power. And those of us, Lord, who still carry the burden of unforgiveness, Lord, we pray that you would enter into that situation now, enter into that memory, 
and release us. Give us freedom and move our hearts to forgive others as you have forgiven us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.